Okay. Okay. <laughs> What's up, everybody? We're back in the Hello. lab again. Young lads getting, getting bad, bad with, with the, the padded, padded pin. pin. We didn't practice that, I'm, no. I promise. Because if, if, if that would have been practice, I would not have done it. And if it had been practice, well, without practice, we could have gone way deeper into yeah. that song. That's an old, old, old school song, Cross Movement. The song is called but Holy Culture. But the sentiment Culture. is true. Yeah. It's been a long time, and we shouldn't have left you without a dope <laughs> beat to step to. <laughs> All of this is just examples of why we should have named the show Theological Cipher. It's true. We should have named it Theological Cipher. Those are all, uh, and if you if you recognize any of those two songs in the chat, go yeah. ahead and put it. If you know about Back in the Lab Again, Young Lads Getting Bad with the Pad and Pen, Holy Culture, a fabulous fabric blend, because God's people got a fashion <laughs> sense. <laughs> if you know that lyric, and you can say what that band's called in the chat, then... Oh, look at Ryan Zyburn immediately Kevin. noticing new Stu Stu Studio. Yeah, that's true. We should acknowledge. Uh, yeah, to break it down. So, so we got a few things. Few announcements. First of all, we're back. We took a really long hiatus, which was very much needed, and we're ready to roll. Um, we're in a new environment, which is not yet complete. So, no. um, you know, Stan had two months to build this whole thing out. He has no other jobs at the church besides that. That was the only was thing it. he was supposed to do. He doesn't do anything else around here. And um, yeah, this he got yes. he got us like 25% of the way done. There's Stan just so mad. Stan looked kind of buff in that video clip, huh? Yeah, camera angles distort things. The camera adds 10 <laughs> pounds. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so the studio is a work in progress. Um, but, we're, but it's good. We're moving ahead because um, when when everything was shut down, the church had lots of space, but as ministries begin to pick back up a lot of that extra space. So Stan was uh, awesome in that he gave us a little portable yeah. <laughs> way of doing this. So we're actually kind of, it's Theology Live portable. Yeah, we could do this anywhere now. Anywhere now. Also, um, uh, Isaac just gave a little reveal, which is yeah. we're also changing the name of the show as of tonight. <gasps> Crazy reaction from all of you, I'm sure. To... Kevin's Theology Hour featuring <laughs> Sam, Sam and, and Isaac. Isaac. And That's the reason right. we did That's Kevin's right. Theology Hour. Hey, Ke let's check in with Kevin real quick. How are you Kevin doing, Kevin? on the ones hey. and twos once again. Every, Dropping the beats. He's back in the, the saddle. the opposite of Isaac. His beard looks good. He's happy. What'd you say? That's the option of me? Yeah, because you're the opposite, opposite of you. you oh, yeah, this. yeah. I was going to say, I just saw someone smiling and happy. <laughs> well, that's also, that's also <laughs> true. Like, What's wrong with this guy, man? <laughs> This is Kevin smiling while no one else is being made fun of, and that's yeah, the opposite not last of Isaac. Long, so. Um, so yeah, we, we also decided uh, during this time because, um, oh yeah, another piece of news, we're a podcast now as well. So we know there are many of you who have requested that, that you'd prefer to listen to it after rather than watch it or have YouTube playing just while you're listening to audio. So as of right now, all of our episodes for the last 40 or so, starting with when you and I started doing the show okay. together, all of those are now available on Spotify or iTunes. Kevin, we got a little picture even we could show people of that. So um, go to iTunes, go to Spotify. It would be great if you could subscribe to those. Um, the searchability of them is, is still a little funky because they're new and they haven't been downloaded that many times. So on Spotify, you might have to type in South Valley Community Church, but that's what it'll look like on iTunes and this is what it'll look like on Spotify. So go subscribe to that, download some episodes. And for those of you who just wanted to listen to audio, there you go. And having accidentally buried the lead, mm -hmm. people probably noticed we also changed the name of the show. Yeah. Officially. It was Theology Thursday Live, but it was just too much to say. Too much to say. 
So we dropped the third. It's like when Justin Timberlake in that Facebook movie. Remember that part? He plays the guy from Napster. Oh, I do. And he goes, drop the the. Yeah, that was just a legendary Facebook. moment. And so instead of that, we dropped the Thursday and we're just calling it Theology Live. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The, the main one being that on the podcast world, there's a bunch of Theology Thursdays already and we didn't want it to be confusing. And all the other reason is because, man, what if we don't want to do this on Thursday forever? Yeah. So may want it to be on a Tuesday and then we'd have to lie. Shoot, even a Wednesday. Which is commandment breaking. Commandment breaking. And we don't want to be commandment breaking. No, we don't do that. We don't do that. Now, scroll up to the top of the comments because um, Tyler Grimaldo via Jacob Serpa at the very top, he said the answer is yes, because the, the, the show tonight, the title is, Did Jesus Ever Claim to Be God? Um, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I saw Kevin was pretty close to banning Jacob. Do you see that? Probably should. You probably should. Yeah, so he says, no need to watch. I answered it for you. But yeah, man, it's great to see you guys. It's good to be back. Um, any other updates or announcements? No. New nothing. name, Theology Live? Podcast. Podcast available. Port, we're portable. We're mobile. We're mobile, agile, hostile. Isn't that what they say? I don't, I don't want to bust down a freestyle right now. No, that's Remember the Titans. Business. I'm not doing a freestyle. That's like the... I didn't I watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a great movie. You should watch it probably. All right. Anything else? Stan, you got anything you want to say to, to folks since you're in here? All right, that's enough. So uh, we can just jump in. Let's move ahead. Yeah, so tonight we're starting a new series on the Gospels. And this we timed it this way because um, at South Valley Community Church, where Isaac and I are both pastors and Kevin and Stan as well, we are starting a new long series in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we wanted to have a series be just focused on understanding some of the kind of theological issues with the gospel. So we'll be talking about issues like, can you rely on them? Are they trustworthy? What's the deal with things that look like contradictions between the gospels? And tonight, and it'll probably end up bleeding over into next week, um, we're going to talk about whether or not Jesus ever, in fact, claimed to be God. Because um, this is actually an, an extremely common claim that's made against Christianity by skeptics and, and atheists that, you know, the idea of Jesus being a divine being, being God himself, is something that later Christians imposed on him. That, mm -hmm. you know, the historical Jesus, who was just a, a teacher and perhaps a revolutionary in his world, would have been horrified at the thought of people worshiping him as a God. He never intended that. That's something you hear quite often, yeah? Yeah, in different forms. Some, I mean, it's you'll hear people saying that didn't happen until the, the church councils in hundreds of years after at Nicaea or a hundred years after the time of Jesus, some of the late New Testament documents started kind of going down that directions. But uh, that's what we're here to dig into. Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll just mention this really briefly because it's honestly not really worth a giant discussion. Um, but one thing to say up front is we could have done an episode about whether Jesus even existed. Um, and we talked about doing that. But the truth is um, the idea, there's a, a whole movement called Jesus mythicist movement, which is the idea that the existence of Jesus of Nazareth is a myth. And um, frankly, it's really not worth a whole episode because while that view is out there, the truth is it's extremely uncommon. Yeah. Very few biblical scholars, whether they're atheist, skeptic, agnostic, or Christian, yeah. very, very few actually believe or would teach that Jesus didn't actually exist. And so even though you'll find you know, famous quotes from people like Bertrand Russell saying that it's unlikely he existed, um, for the most part in modern scholarship, no one really thinks that. In fact, we, we have a quote, Kevin, if you could pull up that Bart Ehrman quote, 
Bart Ehrman's a famous New Testament scholar. He's a skeptic. He's an agnostic. Um, he was a Christian and um, ended up becoming an agnostic, but he's a brilliant New Testament scholar. Um, and he's, he debates against, you know, traditional Christians all the time. And yet he is a fierce defender of the historicity of Jesus's existence. So this is not a Christian. And he says, this is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity, meaning the existence of Jesus. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism because, frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. So that's Bart Ehrman, not a Christian, doesn't believe Jesus was God. In fact, we'll see a video clip of him a little bit later mm -hmm. talking about that. But he says, honestly, if you say that Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist, mm -hmm. you just look dumb. Yeah, the majority, majority across the board, as you said, Christians, non-Christians, atheist, agnostic, um, believe in the per that there was a historical person named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So it's even more, yeah. most people are even more specific than that. The question is, who was this guy? Yeah, and did he rise from the dead? That's that's the biggest mm -hmm. question then. Was he, was he God? And so, yeah, just know that the number of sources that attest his existence is way beyond many, many other historical figures that we take their existence for granted. So we can just kind of jump past that. Now, um, we ought to probably start with the old memes because that's, you know, what we'd like to do. Yeah. So let's throw up a couple of memes about whether or not Jesus is God. Yeah, and some of these, man, people need to pick up their meme game. I know, the, the memes this week are... The are, memes are weak. Some of them, it's like, oh, man, that one, you, that one hurts, man. These, yeah. These ain't, these ain't too good. The truth is, when I was looking for was Jesus God memes, the only types of memes I found were super lame or so blasphemous that there's no way I'm going to put them can't <laughs> on show screen. Them, yeah. So this is a pretty lame one. They take the classic smiling, winking Jesus meme and just say, pray to God, Jesus is not God. And don't pray to Jesus, pray to God. Throw up the next one, Kev. This one's a little more clever. It's Jesus praying and he says, are you there, God? It's you, Jesus. I saw another one saying, are you there, God? It's me, you, with that same image. But you get the idea. And this is probably something we'll address next week, which is, why, who's Jesus praying to if he's God? That's a little teaser for next week. We got one more, I think, Kev. Yeah, this is on our side, but it was my favorite of the memes. You can't even read the text, but if you're familiar with the meme, you won't have to. It says, when you ask Jesus if he knows God, and then you have the famous... Obi-Wan Kenobi meme where he says, well, of course I know him. He's me. Um, so that to me, Christians win this round of memes, I would that's say. That's the best meme. And it was, and that's uncommon. Yeah. As much as I love my brothers and sisters in faith, we don't typically the win meme the meme game. The meme game is sometimes weak. Yeah. So that's, that's just an example of what's out there. Usually the truth is part of why there's not good memes about this is because the discussion of whether or not Jesus is God is usually a little bit more serious. Yeah. And so um, just to be clear, well, actually, you know what? Let's show a video clip rather than me explaining this. Hopefully we can make this work correctly. You want to pull up my screen here, Kev? This is a video that has almost 600,000 views. Um, as always, when we show videos, we want to point out that we're doing this under fair use because we're making commentary on it. And uh, we'll just show a few. Yeah. And really quick uh, to re reiterate what we've said since the beginning, we want to tell you what people are actually arguing 
and sane. So we don't want to put words into people's mouths that we disagree with or misrepresent what they're saying. So part of the reason and exercise of this is to say, this is the claim that this person or group is making. Hear it for yourself in context. Right. Yeah, perfect. And this guy is a a popular YouTube channel. He's a Muslim apologist. And um, this is a, a longer, part of a longer video giving multiple reasons why he argues Jesus is not God. But this one kind of summarizes the most common, the most commonly heard one whole concept of Trinity did not come about until the third century of the church and it was not formulated as a doctrine that must be believed in until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea when um, all of the bishops and the, and the, and the scholars of Christianity which started to form into Christianity after Paul came together and said okay this is a doctrine that we must believe in and the first person to expound this doctrine was Paul who never saw Jesus Christ himself, never walked with him, never talked to him, never saw him, never ate with him, never learned from him. It was something that he formulated off a vision that he said he had while he was on the road to Damascus to actually persecute Christians. So this he was the first person to ever come up with this title of Christian, ever come up with this title of Trinity, ever come up with the Godship of Jesus Christ or only begotten son. All of these things came with Paul the Apostle. Okay, so before we even really dive into the is Jesus God stuff, there's just, um, there's a, a massive number of just incorrect facts given in that section more than i actually even noticed the other times i watched it just now um there's a number of kind of chronology issues got one in the comment from showbiferous yeah oh man jacob is just so nerdy he's going um, showbiferous that's 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 very nerdy i don't i don't care (laughs) but it's a good point um yeah, the guy said third Should century. Should be fourth century. But yeah, it's a little tricky. I, I always have to, truth be told, like, I know this and I've known Isaac's it for known a long time. known to pause for a long because time. Because I'll know the date and I'll be like, wait a second, 325 is fourth century. Yes. It's kind of one of those things that the academics do just to kind of hold over you. Right. Because it is annoying. Yeah, it is. And it but gets it makes re- sense. It well, makes sense. And it's confusing because then when you flip back into BC... Oh, man. You have to get even more complicated. Yeah. But yeah, so so it's Council of Nicaea was 325 AD. Tyler pointed out... V- Ty- can we tell Tyler, get your own YouTube Tyler, get an account. account. And then maybe you log in, and then Jacob can comment through you, as would be Jacob, more appropriate. Jacob, stop lying. Um, so here's the deal. Just a number of like quick things. You could see some chronology issues in what the guy's arguing. And some of it, I want to be generous with him, some of it might just be misspeaking. But when you say something like, well, the Trinity doesn't isn't formulated until the third century with the Council of Nicaea, and it's expounded by Paul. Paul is hundreds of years before the mm-hmm. Council of Nicaea. Um, Paul's also not the person to come up with the term Christian. Mm-hmm. He's not the person to come up with the term Son of God or Only Begotten. So a bunch of that stuff is just kind of like on the surface incorrect about the Bible and the history of Christianity. But that general claim is one that you hear yeah. a lot. And there's truth to it in the sense that um, some of this theological language wasn't officially formulated and adopted by the church right. kind of in the universal sense until some of these counts. Although the, the word Trinity appears before, I think it's first appearance. You can fact check me on this. I think it's Tertullian is the first one that uses some type of language. Um, Which is quite a bit earlier than Nicaea. Yeah, so, but either way, the point is that this type of language wasn't invented to hundreds of years after the death of Jesus because the Christian movement was changing and evolving. And the, at first he was just a prophet or a teacher or some historical figure. Some people might even have a high view of Jesus. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. In Islam, he's respected as a prophet. Um, but the claim that he was deity was something invaded by later Christians hundreds of years after the fact. So that's the claim. Yeah, that's the general claim. And so the, the way you counter that claim 
generally, and obviously there's way more technical details we could get into than we're going to be able to, is you look and see, does Jesus in the Bible, in the New Testament, which is, you know, even, even the majority of scholars, Christian or not, will say that, that most of the New Testament's happening within the first century. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about within, you know, 60, 70 years of the yeah. death of Jesus at the latest, and some of it much, much earlier yeah, than Yeah, there's that. an argument, although many scholars don't like it. I actually, I'm not completely convinced, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. The majority of the New Testament documents were written before 70 AD. Yeah. Uh, Kevin pulled up first use of the word Trinity, uh, and it is Tertullian in Latin. I was, was right. I appreciate when I get fact-checked and I am in the right, Go ahead and put it up on the screen so we can make note of it. When I'm wrong, just tell me after the show's done. Yeah, when he's wrong, um, attribute it. it to me Yeah, later. It was in the notes from Sam, <laughs> man. It my fault. I knew it was fishy as soon as I read it. So what we're going to do is start with the kind of most obvious um, like things in the New Testament. Because again, just to be really clear, if you can show in the New Testament that Jesus is claiming to be God, mm-hmm. then this claim that that's invented in Nicaea in 325 yeah. AD is is clearly false. And here's here's something important is that and this is very hard for us, remove 2,000 years. The question, did Jesus claim to be God, is already formulated in a way that can be misleading. Right. And what I mean by that is this. If you ask someone 2,000 years ago, is so-and-so God, they w- the next question would be like, well, which one? Yeah. There's gods and goddesses. There's multiple deities. There's hundreds of them, if not thousands of them. There's regional ones, territorial ones, all kinds of different gods and goddesses. So when we hear the word God in the modern era, we've had 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian tradition to automatically make us think monotheism. Did Jesus claim to right. be the one and only true God? Capital G, God to us in the modern Western world means the ultimate being. And there's, yes. but you could still argue a bunch of stuff about that, but that's normal to us. But for most of human history, God is a category term, not yes. an identifier of a specific being. Exactly. So, so to ask someone in the first century, did so-and-so claim to be God, is already on shaking ground. The real question and the heart of the issue is, did Jesus think he was in some way, in some sense, the God of Israel? Right. Um, is he the person that Israel in the Old Testament was worshiping? Um, is he on equal standing? Is how does how is he um, that in human form, if you if you will? And so that is the question: Does Jesus and the Gospel writers and the very first followers of Jesus think he's the God of Israel? Yeah, and that's really important because on the surface you could say, well, does Jesus ever in the Gospels say, "I am God"? By the way, I'm God. No, he doesn't. He doesn't, say, he doesn't ever say that. But what hopefully you'll see as we walk through some of these texts is that what he does and what the gospel authors do is actually way more powerful. It's more powerful than that. Than that. Much more I mean, powerful just to say that. I am a God isn't, isn't, I mean, it would have been radical, but it wouldn't have been the same thing as I am Yahweh of Israel. The God of Israel, Yahweh, um, who, by the way, is the one true God, the only God, the maker of heaven and earth. But you have to, you have to understand that inner logic. It's, you have to take the right freeway, if you will, to get to the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. You have to go through a Jewish lens because we're reading Jewish documents. Yes. And so again, think category and being as different things. So you are a dad, but you are Isaac Serrano. That's right. He, Yahweh is God. 
but yeah. who he is is Yahweh, the God of and, Israel. And we, we, we've, we've mentioned this in the past, but it, it's important to remind everyone, when you're reading your Old Testament, um, when you encounter the word Lord, and it's all in capitals, that is the Hebrew covenantal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. Most often you'll see it paired with God, so it'll be Yahweh, Elohim, Lord God. Um, God is the the, ti- the title, the person. It's, it's, it's a claim on what he is. But who, the person of the, who is the God of Israel, that is Yahweh. So the question is, who is Jesus in relationship to Yahweh, the God of Israel? That's right. the heart of yeah. the question. And so we're going to start with the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John, frankly, lays this out in the most direct and obvious way possible. So we'll work through John fairly quickly, and then we'll talk about the fact that, um, yeah, and Joseph is correct that Polycarp and Ignatius, who are kind of the earliest post-New Testament uh, teachers of, of theology that we have access to their works now, they definitely taught that Jesus was God. And as we'll probably see next week, they affirmed what Paul said too, which is pretty significant. But yeah, in John, you have the most direct, most obvious um, claim. So let's look at let's look at a couple of them. Let's pull this up, Kev. John eight fifty eight is typically the example that you'll see people go to the quickest. So Jesus is in an argument with the Pharisees, which is a normal thing for him to have happen. And so they go back and forth and argue about whether he's empowered by demons or whether it's the power of God. And then Jesus says to them in one of his most brutal takedowns in the entire New Testament. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me. Now, if you just stopped there, you'd be like, well, that sounds like he's not God. Yeah. But keep going. Of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. I love that. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Keep in mind, Abraham had been dead for 2,000 years by the time this is happening. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now let's pause there and not finish Mm -hmm. the story quite yet. Now, what's the significance of Jesus? Not just saying I existed before Abraham, Mm -hmm. but specifically formulating it by saying before Abraham was, egoemi, I am. What's the deal with that? Yeah, so that egoemi goes all the way back to the Septuagint, and more importantly, you, you don't even need the Greek Septuagint. Yeah, you have it's, it in English. In English, in the Exodus account, Moses encounters Yahweh in the burning bush, and Yahweh declares himself to be I am, or I am that I am. It's translated in English in multiple ways, but essentially this phrase, I am, I am that I am, is something that Yahweh claimed of himself. And so when Jesus is like, man, I, Abraham saw, saw this. Already there's a claim on <clears throat> this is more than a man. It doesn't necessarily mean he's God. He could be some right. created angel or some spiritual being. So it, being bef- back in the day when Abraham was doesn't necessarily mean God of Israel. Right. But at least gets you past a man. But then the statement goes further, and Jesus claims to be the I am all the way back from Exodus. And you see it, like Isaac said, it's right there in English. In Greek, it's the exact same Greek as the Greek translation of the Hebrew, I am at the burning bush. And so there's just no question that Jesus in this moment is claiming to be God. And here's the kicker. And this happens quite a bit. Oh, hold on. I got some issues going on with my computer here. Hold on. If it's not working, I can just read stuff. Let me try one more thing here, Kev. When you when you've got the mobile theology live, things get a little fly. sketchy. Wonder why? Okay, hold on. 
Here we go. See if we're coming back. How are we now, Kev? Got it? No? Okay, no worries. I'll read it. Now, if you got a Bible, follow along, because some of the stuff is, without question, more powerful if you see it. Now, here's, here's the probably the most significant moment in this thing. Because, and this happens all kinds of times in the Bible. We're going to mm-hmm. see it multiple times tonight. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And you could potentially try to make an argument that like, you know, well, who, maybe he meant that, maybe he didn't, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. But you can tell what he meant and how it was understood by the way people react mm-hmm. to him. So Jesus says in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the next verse says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So that immediate response, Jesus mm-hmm. says, before Abraham was, I am. And they don't go, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. They pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Yes. And he's not, whoa, guys, hey, hold up, man. You must have taken me the wrong way. I didn't mean like it like <laughs> that. I just meant like, you know, I am. Yeah. I yeah. exist. And something that you'll hear me say multiple times tonight probably is that the Jewish people do not kill people for claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. Yeah. Because people have, that's been claimed many times before Jesus. It will be claimed many times after. Yeah. After Jesus, you have a a very famous rabbi, Rabbi Akiba supporting um, someone who's called Simon, the star as the Messiah. Yeah. Um, And he's supporting them. No one's saying he's blaspheming or anything like that. I actually think that was the event where they, they start printing coins, new coins. Year one, year one, because this is the year of the Messiah. So it's a big deal that the Messiah has come and people are supporting him, but no one was accusing Rabbi Akiba of like blasphemy, blasphemy or anything yeah. like that. Nobody's going to stone someone if they say they're the Messiah. They might be like, we'll prove it and let's wait, let's wait and see if you are. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they immediately go to kill him shows that they take this as a blasphemous claim to be God. Now, we'll just really briefly, two chapters later in John 10, the same exact thing happens. Jesus says this long thing that ends with him saying, I and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. Now again, you just read that by itself, it kind of sounds like he's not claiming to be God. It sounds like mm-hmm. he's claiming this great intimacy with God. But then it says immediately after that, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, this is the key. It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Yeah. So again, this is the gospel of Because you don't see Isaiah or Ezekiel ha- using that type of language. No. Like, I and Yahweh are, are one. Yeah, no, it's, it's, if anything, it's kind of the opposite. The, the, close, the more intimacy Old Testament characters have with God, the more the kind of awe and yeah. his majesty is reflected. And again, it's not like they, don't, they say, we're going to kill you. And he goes, why? Yeah, it's a big misunderstanding, man. No, I did. He goes, they go, you're, you're making yourself God. And Jesus in John's gospel does not say, oh, hold on, you've misunderstood me. So pretty crystal clear. Um, we can do one more. This isn't. This is a little bit different, but um, it's just a moment in the high priestly prayer when Jesus is praying to the Father, um, and he he refers to the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Yeah. Which again, I mean, that's fairly hard to to get past the fact that at least he's an uncreated being at the very least. Yeah. And then finally, and this one gets this one's just worth mentioning because you you hear some really ridiculous claims about it. At the very end of John's gospel, there's the, the disciple Thomas, who's known as Doubting Thomas, because he's the guy who kind of always has questions and, and isn't really, you know, sure about anything. Even up until everyone else has attested that they've seen Jesus, he goes, unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I touch the wounds on his hands mm-hmm. and his side, I won't believe it's him. 
So Jesus shows up and allows Thomas to do that. And Thomas responds by saying, my Lord and my God. Now, have you, you've heard, I'm sure, what the counter to this is. I've heard some pretty bad ones. I don't know if I've heard the same ones you've heard. or I don't even know if we've heard all of them, but probably the worst one is that people will argue that Thomas is using the Lord's name in vain yes, because that's he's the so one I was shocked for. <laughs> that Jesus came back. It's like he goes, it's like if, if someone thing happened, and I get, oh my God. That's what people truly say. So Thomas Jesus shows up and he's like, my Lord, my God, like, oh my heavens. Yeah. Um, in which case it's like, okay, that's, that's really, we're going to first off kind of anachronistically read back yes. modern taking the Lord's name in vain. The idea the that century. a devout first century Jew would exclaim, my God, because yeah. he's surprised, is insulting. And if it was done, then you would expect Jesus to be like, my son, Maybe I know don't you are take shocked, my father's but, name. <laughs> but he's, you know. That'd be awesome. You do a commentary on it where it's like, Jesus probably corrected him and said, hey, whoa, easy there, killer. Calm down, man. So yeah, short, the only reason I brought that one up is because clearly Thomas, at the end of John's gospel, is saying Jesus is God. And the idea that he's using the name of God as an expletive because he's surprised is just straight up ridiculous. So Kevin, we can't get a video clip from my computer, yeah? Let's just, let's see if we can. If we can't, no worries. Okay, so far so good. So that's the Gospel of John. I want to show you a clip of Bart Ehrman, that scholar that I was talking about before, um, basically saying why John doesn't count. Well, that's right. In the Gospel of John, he's portrayed as calling himself God. But I'm not asking whether he's portrayed as calling himself as God in the Gospel of John, which he is. I'm asking, did the man Jesus himself, the man who was walking around in Galilee, did he actually call himself God? Or is John putting these words on his lips? So let's jump. I'm just going to have a little farther ahead in the same clip just so we don't spend too long. Let's jump back to the video one more time, Kevin. This is later on in the, just literally like one minute later in the same uh, presentation. Think about it for a second. Suppose you were a gospel writer in the early church and you're writing an account of Jesus and everybody knows that Jesus called himself God. Would you leave that out? Like, that part isn't important enough to mention? That he thought he was God? Jesus doesn't call himself God in Matthew, Mark, or Luke or their sources. How is that imaginable if, in fact, they knew that he called himself God? They just, like, neglected to bring that part up? That's why scholars wonder whether the Gospel of John is historically accurate or not. I'm not... So there's, there's him making the point, right? And this is, this is the, the kind of important takeaway from that. I'm sure it's very clear. And again, this is a brilliant New Testament scholar who's a skeptic. And he's saying, yes, no question, John... The author mm -hmm. thinks Jesus is God, and his version of Jesus that he's created as a literary construction, that one claims to be God. But he's Ehrman believes John's gospel's way later than the other ones, and he goes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't have a Jesus who claims to be God. Only John does. And John's a weird gospel. John's like, you know, not all, I think literally 90% different than the other ones. Yeah. Real briefly, actually, this is worth exp uh, yeah. just explaining a little bit. Um, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels. And that just means that those are the ones that, for the most part, are telling 
of like very, very similar stories. They have a lot in common. They rely on each other in many ways. And so um, those three are the ones that kind of go, they belong together in one group. It's the synoptics. And then John is kind of this outlier. It's a, it's a, it has a very different feel. Like I said before, the other ones, there's a ton of similarities and overlaps, but John is like 90 something percent unique. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and it, it probably is the latest gospel. There's debate about how much later. Yeah. Some people, like Isaac said earlier, think it's, you know, 70-ish AD. Some people think it's as late as 90. But Ehrman's point is, well, the synoptic gospels are way earlier. They're way closer to the actual life and of Jesus. Yeah. And they certainly are. And he says, they also all kind of like get along with each other a little bit better. And in those gospels, Jesus isn't saying before Abraham was, I am. Only John has Jesus saying that. And so to kind of, in a sense, accept that challenge, we're going to do for the rest of tonight, we're going to look at some examples from the gospel of Mark, which is on probably, most scholars agree, the earliest gospel. It's also, in my opinion, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of like the least theological, in a sense, gospel. Yeah, they, the, sometimes people explain it as the action gospel yeah. because it, um, it tells events. It doesn't have as much teaching as, say, Matthew or Luke, but it's kind of telling just what's going on with the life of Jesus, what's, what's, what are his miracles, and then how are people responding. Um, and it's the shortest, and it's kind of action-packed. He uses the word immediately. It's like, and then immediately this happened, yeah. and immediately this happened, where Matthew may record an event, and then there's several chapters of Jesus teaching, and you just don't get that. Um, and of course, many modern scholars believe Mark was the first gospel to be written. Historically, the church believed in something called the uh, Matthewan priority, that Matthew was written first, but whether Matthew was written first or Mark was written first, the, the, the heart of the argument is this. John is written way after the fact of Jesus. Jesus there's been all this theological development There's been in the development so that you begin John 1, 1 with, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The earliest gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and which, as you said, kind of all are in the same ecosystem. They feel like the same genre and they breathe the same air where John is a little bit different. They're all kind of united in that you don't see Jesus going around saying, before Abraham was, I am. Um, and so we, to steel man that argument, you would say the earliest documents of the New Testament don't appear to have Jesus being God or deity. Not until almost 100 years after the fact do you get this development. Yeah, and the truth is, and we'll show example after example right now, and again, because I can't seem to show my Bible on the screen right now, I recommend you grab one so you can follow along with me. Um, And yeah, and Joseph pointed out that the Gospels also have different audiences. That's definitely stuff we're going to cover later on in this series on the Gospels, but you're you're definitely right about that. Um, And again, to be fair, John is very, very different. And as a Christian, seeing John's place in the canon, that makes John beautiful and strange and Mm -hmm. awesome in all of these ways. But as we're going to see, man, in terms that you described earlier of is Jesus claiming to be Israel's God, the stuff that's in Mark is actually some of the coolest stuff in all of the gospels. It's less obvious than the stuff in John, but if you are a Jewish reader and you know your Bible stories as a Jew, dude, it's, it is unmissable. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the point. So remember the Gospels are biographies of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're telling you a story. So oftentimes we approach them as like we would say a history book. Yeah. And a history book begins with, we're about to cover this. 
these are the key key developments and this is the major claims. But if you're reading them as story, you're going to see a buildup and you're going to see stuff where like something happens and the first readers would have been like, did, did Jesus just, just do that? Yeah. And then and sometimes it's beautiful. The disciples almost anticipate your reaction where the disciples go, did he just do yeah. that? Who did, is this who guy? Who is this guy? And what it's doing is you're seeing these glimpses and it builds and builds until the case is overwhelming, but they're doing it not in a way that a modern history book would do it. Do it. And they're doing it a way so that its first listeners would know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And a mo- we in the 20th century really want Mark to say, and then Jesus said for the 50th time, by the way, to be clear, I am Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let's jump in. You get one of the best examples of this actually in the very, very beginning, literally the opening three verses yes, like, of Mark. Where do you find this type of stuff? How about chapter one? How about Mark one verse one, literally? So let's jump to that. We're going to try one more time to show the screen. Okay. No go. All right. So open up your Bible. If you have one to Mark one verse one, the first three verses say this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's such an awesome first sentence. Love that. A lot of scholars think that's added later. That's a discussion for another day. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this is an intro to John the Baptist. The gospel of Mark starts off with, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he quotes from Isaiah. It's actually funny. The New Testament does this a lot. He says it's written in Isaiah, but then he quotes from both Isaiah and and Malachi. And it's very common in Jewish writing to just kind of give credit to the preeminent of the Mm -hmm. two prophets. But here's the thing. So again, on the surface, you just go, okay, so these are prophecies about the coming of Jesus. So he's quoting these prophecies, preparing the way for Jesus. But if you go to those verse references, and by the way, you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have anything fancy. All you have to do is look at the footnotes in your Bible. 99% chance your Bible will have little letters next to those things from Isaiah and Malachi, saying where you can go in Isaiah and Malachi to find them. Specifically, it's from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Here's the key. This is Isaiah 40, verse 3. Listen to this. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Elohim, God. Mm -hmm. So again, Mark. Yeah, go ahead. The image is someone prepare the way for who? Yahweh. Yahweh. And it specifically is Yahweh. It's our God. This is Isaiah talking to Israel saying, prepare the highway. Yahweh. Yahweh's coming. And then similarly in Malachi 3 verse 1, um, Malachi writes, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, that's Adonai, not, not Yahweh. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. So he will prepare the way before me, dot, 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 says Yahweh of hosts. So Mark starts the gospel off by saying, this is prophecy about Jesus. And if you click those hyperlinks back to the prophecies, Mm -hmm. both of them are explicitly about Yahweh. And this is something that we're just going to show a few examples of this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do this exact thing all the time. They'll take prophecies that are not about the Messiah specifically. Mm -hmm. They're about Yahweh. And they'll say, this applies to Jesus. Yeah, so have that image in your head. There's a forerunner who is out like in the wilderness who is going to prepare a path for somebody. 
And then what does Mark go into after he quotes these prophecies is the forerunner preparing the way for Yahweh, but Yahweh is not the one who shows up. Right. This guy named Jesus of Nazareth shows up. Yeah, and again, have in your mind that there are different categories. There are Messiah categories in the prophecies, but many, much, many, many fewer of them. Anyway, there's less of those. And then a ton about Yahweh, the God of Israel, coming to become king in Israel. Mm -hmm. And the, the New Testament authors will very regularly make those about Jesus. And so right there, literally the first three verses yeah. take Old Testament prophecy about Yahweh and say this is about Jesus. Yeah. And so someone reading this who knows the Old Testament might immediately go, wait a second. I know what Isaiah was talking about. What's the, what is exactly going on here? Yeah. Who's coming? Who is this person? And you're going to see throughout Mark, because it's a narrative, as Isaac's saying, the clarity of these claims build to a crescendo throughout the book. But I mean, that's a pretty firmly planted flag in the very opening paragraph to say prophecies about Yahweh, there's someone preparing the way for him, and then cut to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Yeah. It's pretty dang yeah. clear. Um, another one happens in Mark 2, verse 12. We're going to try this, the screen one more time. Let's give it a shot, Kev. Kevin's writing notes to us. Oh, your little workaround seems to be working so far. Okay. Fine. Stan's walking out of the room with a little bit of swagger like he thought of that idea. I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so okay famous story where jesus heals a paralytic this is the story where the paralytic's friends go up on the roof and make a hole in the roof and drop him down and then it says starting in verse 8 and immediately there's that word mark uses all the time immediately jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them why do you question these things oh wait, sorry i should have gone back farther he tells him son your sins are forgiven this is the key and it's an interesting moment narratively because the paralytic isn't looking for his sins to be forgiven. He wants to not be paralyzed. No, anymore. it actually is kind of at first messed up. Yeah. Because like, we went to all this all trouble. This trouble. We lowered this dude through the roof and he's like, eh, your sins are forgiven. Sins, no problem. How about my legs, man? And so now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man, meaning Jesus, speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is crucial. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, so Jesus, follow the logic here. He says, your sins are forgiven. The scribes in their hearts go, only God, only God can, can forgive sins. Jesus knows they're thinking that and says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Mm -hmm. So you can see, again, this is not like, like we're having to really stretch. It's, it's incredibly clear yeah. in the story. And there's, it, this is one of the hardest things for us to do is because we have to think with the inner logic of, of a first century Jew. Um, again, the majority of the New Testament is written by first century Jews. Okay. So... Jesus is not, he's not only claiming the same authority, but there was a location where forgiveness of, of sins occurred, and it's, it's the temple. I mean, that's the place where the, uh, the right. priest atones. And so... God will forgive your sins at the temple. And the, the temple is work. special, not just because it's a building, but it's because the presence of God is there. So follow this. The, you atone for sins, the priest makes atonement for sins at the temple because that's where the presence of God is. 
Jesus is not just claiming authority or having the same type of authority, but he is now the place where forgiveness of sins is occurring. And if that is the case, that is the presence of the God it of means Israel. God is here. And that's, man, so such an important theme in the Gospels that Jesus is the thing that yeah. the temple itself has for about 1,500 years, starting with the tabernacle, been pointing forward to the presence of God with his yeah. people. And again, it's another example of, it's crystal clear in the text. The, the scribes say, only God can forgive sins. Jesus knows they think that, and he doesn't say, whoa, guys. And more, yeah, and more importantly than just Jesus saying, no, guys, Mark isn't saying, I know my be, I might be a little cryptic here. Let the reader understand, I am making no claim that Jesus right. is this. Like he, he's the, he is one, one of, if not the first gospel, it could be Matthew, maybe not. I mean, the early, as far as the earliest writing. Yeah. And he's making that claim by telling the story in that way. He's either like a horrible storyteller and he didn't get his point across and misled all these people or he intends right. it to come across and, that way. And it's, to me, there's no question. This is the reason why the story is included. And not mm -hmm. just in Mark, by the way, but also in Matthew. And so you have this just moment of only God can forgive sins. And Jesus goes, really? Your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. it's, it's right on the nose. And the proof is in the pudding with the miracle. Yeah, exactly. Right. He goes, let me, let me demonstrate for you yeah. why this is true. Now, uh, just a couple chapters after that in Mark 4, again, we're having technical issues, so I won't be able to pull it up. Um, but in Mark 4, you have Jesus calming the sea. Jesus does a couple different Sea of Galilee related tricks. Uh, not tricks, miracles is the proper word. Come on. <laughs> miracles, my three-year-old <laughs> would say. Did Jesus do a miracle? She asks after every Bible story. Yeah. Pretty awesome. So Jesus, this is the one where Jesus is asleep in the boat, crazy storm rises. Yeah. The disciples ask this incredibly powerful question, do you even care that we're dying? And Jesus wakes up, silences the storm. And to Isaac's point earlier about narrative tension, after the storm, the storm gets silenced at the word of Jesus, the disciples go, who is this? Mm -hmm. That even the wind and the waves obey him. And without taking all the time to actually look this up, but you can if you want in Psalm 89, Psalm 107, there are these incredibly specific verses about the voice of God calming the sea, telling the waves yeah. to be still and they listen. And then, you, of course, you have God parting the Red Sea, parting the Jordan River, this idea that, and even all the way back to Genesis 1 with God having the, the sea and yeah. the dry land separate. The yeah. person who commands the seas is the one who created them and maintains them and sustains mm -hmm. them. And so the question, and this is why... And, the, and the, the Spirit of God at the very beginning is over the waters in Genesis 1. So there's this idea that develops from Genesis all the way through the Psalms. And then the Psalms is like the liturgy of... Israel. Yeah. They're singing these songs again and again and again and again. And if, if they don't got Apple Music or Spotify, right. their, their song list isn't billions of songs, man. They got the, the Psalms. And you have these songs ingrained in you since childhood. And there is one who can calm the sea. There is one who can give word and make the storm quiet. And that's Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yeah. And, and I think even from just the historical moment of that story, you can picture the disciples going, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And nobody's going to say it out loud yet. That doesn't happen yeah. in Mark's gospel until Mark 8. But, but they're, they, they have to be thinking there's only one yeah. who can calm the storm. And Mark doesn't say, for the disciples were confused that Jesus was Yahweh. Right. All, he was just a mighty prophet in power yeah. indeed. And what this is is storytelling. Because like you've said earlier, it's not a textbook. He's telling you the story. And at this point, we're still only in Mark 4. 
You know, we're yeah. 25% of the way into the book only. And so you have this moment where Jesus is revealing, watch this, I can calm the storm just with my words. Have we missed something in the chat? I think there's a debate about There's that. a debate about a, uh, oh, Robert Bengals in Iowa. And there's a debate about what sports team, I'm so sporty, He's I don't sports even. Sports ball. You know, <laughs> you, you're going to score some touchdowns and some home runs. I mean, here's the thing. As a sports fan, it's very important to me that the sporting men perform the sport that they play really well so that they win the sporting game against the other team that I like less that's what it comes than the team I prefer. That's what, it, that's what it comes down to for me. Um, yeah, but just, that's just one sports fan. Just stick talking. to badminton. <laughs> stick to badminton. All right. So that's Mark Four. Now, this next one, um, if we had like, you know, another hour we could get really in in detail with this one it's it's actually probably my favorite one even though it's one of the most subtle ones and this one's way less obvious so i'll mm -hmm. be really brief but in mark six you get another sea of galilee story this is the one where mark portrays jesus walking on water and it's the where mm -hmm. peter walks on water with him he walks out to the boat um and there's this moment in that that in the in english and in the gospel it's as a modern person it's really mm -hmm. kind of strange it says that they go out he's left on the shore and then in the middle of the night, very, very early morning, actually, Jesus comes walking out to the boat. Mm -hmm. But it says he meant to pass them by. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, it's sort of like, but they see him. And so he goes to the boat. And, they, and then he, again, actually, in this, in this verse says, don't be afraid, it's me. But when he says it's me, it's, again, that Greek construction, you go at me, he says, don't be afraid, I am. What's happening in that that's very subtle but almost impossible to deny that it's on purpose because you read that in English and go like, what he meant to pass them by and then they saw him. So his plan got messed up. Yeah. Like was, what the heck is Jesus doing? Like, you, oh man, I meant to pass them by, but they, they tricked I me. I got caught. I was too slow. I got caught. I was too obvious with my yeah. water walking. What's happening there is that in the book of Job, this very strange and amazing Old Testament book, there's all these different kind of arguments and like poetic outcries of Job asking all these questions of God, like, where is God in the midst of my suffering? Why has God allowed this stuff to happen to me? And in the middle of one of those, in Job chapter 9, Job has this outcry about how God is, is undiscernible to him. He can't see him. He can't understand him. And he talks in, chap in chapter 9, verse 8. In fact, I, I'll pull it up even though I can't pull it up for everybody to see, but I want to read it correctly. He says in this poetry, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? So you have this image of God walking on water. And then just three verses later in verse 11, Job, talking about the unknowability of God, says, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, and I do not perceive him. And that in the Greek translation of that section of Job, that phrase, he passes by me, is exactly the same as the Greek that Mark uses to say yeah. Jesus intended to pass by them. And so not only is that like a nod to the fact that Jesus is God, yeah. he's the one who treads on the water and passes by, but there's actually this beautiful, I think, theological point being made that in Jesus, when God passes by and you say, wait, that's Jesus, he comes mm -hmm. to the disciples and gets in the boat. Now that's, that's me interpreting. That's not yeah. at all clear in the text, but it's beautiful that in, in Job, however many hundreds of years ago that was, Job saying, God passes by me and I can't see him. And then in Jesus, he passes by and they do see him. One of the biggest problems is we haven't trained ourselves to read the Bible in this way. Um, although when we're watching other stories or we're listening to other narratives, we have trained ourselves to do this. We just don't do it with the Bible. Yeah. So, for example, um, at the end of the original Star Wars, 
Luke Skywalker has to hit the impossible shot to blow up the Death Star. It's one in a million. Okay, it's one in a million. The he he accomplished he does that, and then you and and Obi Wan's like use the Force, Luke. When he says use the Force, Luke, and he hits the shot, you're going, maybe this guy might be a Jedi. And then there's later development that, of course, he's he's the Jedi. The Jedi, you, Jedi. You don't you want say. like at the beginning of that movie. Like when Obi Obi Wan meets him in the desert. Hey Luke, I'm gonna blow everything for you right now. You're a Jedi. You're actually like the super Jedi. You're the super <laughs> Jedi. In fact, <laughs> there's gonna be two more movies. It's gonna be called Return of the Jedi, and it's about you. So, but we know with certainty as we're watching the movie what's happening, and we don't want a narrative to go. And this is the point. We want them to bring us along to that, and we do it all the time. So, for instance, same Star Wars example. Um, Obi-Wan says, these are not the droids you're looking for. When Rey, who is not a Jedi yet, when she does that same mind trick, and if she says, these aren't the droids you're looking for, some, she, she attempts to do that and it works, you're going, oh, oh that's a throwback to when Obi-Wan was doing it. Who's a Jedi? She's going to yeah. be the next Jedi. And that's a very, that example is very, very similar, honestly, as, as silly as this sounds, to Jesus treading the waves Absolutely. and passing them by. Yeah. And so you're- it's the same, It's the same thing. And there's some of these are on the surface that even in English and with no background knowledge, if you're paying attention, you can see. And then there are some like this that are way more buried. You like you have to be really familiar with an obscure Old Testament book. And then to really verify it, you have to look at the Greek translation of that and match it up. Yeah. But once you do that, you're like, this is absolutely beautiful. This is God becoming imminent in mm -hmm. a new way, um, which is really, really a powerful moment. So yeah, great example. And we'll talk more about that later on in the series in the Gospels when we talk about how the Gospels work. But um, as we've been saying tonight, it's really important to recognize when Isaac talks about them being narratives and them being stories that are told in a specifically storytelling way, that does not mean that they're not historical. It just means that the way history was done in this time, in this time period is not the way we do it now. Yes. Our genres are much cleaner and more separate. Yeah, and, we, and if you were reading a history book or let's say you're you're watching a, a documentary on some historical event. you don't want it to be done in the most boring way possible right. you want there to be a build and a narrative structure and a plot and tension and resolve yeah you know what's a great example of that that just occurred to me right now is um i don't know if you watch nature shows with your kids i do but there's like the hardcore realistic nature shows where animals are just dying and it's brutal but then when disney puts out a nature show have you seen the disney with the panda one for example. I don't know if I've seen the panda one, but I've seen a lot of these shows. There's a panda one. There's a grizzly one. In the Disney ones, they just completely <laughs> invent a narrative. Yeah. And so they add sound effects. They're like, oh, this is the, the moment when Mama Panda finally is letting her baby panda climb a tree by itself for the first time. It's like, might not have been the first time. Yeah. This is just a really good shot you had of the panda climbing the tree. Mm -hmm. And so they, this is, it's not the same as the Gospels because what I'm saying is the Gospels are, are doing history as narrative, mm -hmm. but it's but you can see how the most compelling nature show still involves you taking these or images they're yeah, you they're have. trying to to at least to get you to watch. Otherwise, no one watches it. Now you could do that in a way that's historically faithful because those are a lot of the nature shows that I watch. Because then it's like, and then there was not enough food. I knew you were going to go there. And Mama Squirrel ate her babies. <laughs> it's like, dude, hey. man. That panda show got dark, dude. The mama snow leopard thing dies in the end. She I was dies. Like, it's like, dang, that's... Brought back old memories from like when Littlefoot's mom dies in yeah. Land oh. Before Time, man, and you're just like all crying. And It's a little kid movie. How are they going to kill mama, Littlefoot mama in the I'm, first 15 minutes? I'm, I'm, not, cry right I'm now. not ready for... I was not ready for you to remind me of the first Land Before Time movie. It's true. We're going to have to end a little early uh, so I can go cry. Yeah. 
No, I mean, it's Bambi. Bambi's Bambi. mom dies, right? Don't go into the meadow. Littlefoot. All right. We literally have five movies. minutes left, and we have to do the best one. Um, and then again, to tease next week, this is Mark. We're talking, this is the Gospels. Next week, just to finish this topic, we're going to be looking at Paul and specifically why even though Paul doesn't get treated as a valid source for this, that's a, a ridiculous argument. So we'll talk about Paul and to kind of do mm. some cleanup of some theological questions about what it means for Jesus to be God. But for now, we're going to finish Mark. And there are way more, by the way. We're just trying to, to fly through some of this stuff and give you some of the best examples. Mark, as we said, has these, this build of clearer and clearer, more and more dramatic examples. And as somebody said earlier in the chat, I don't actually remember who it was, there's just, um, you know, even in the beginning parts of Mark, Jesus doesn't even want demons saying who he is or what his identity is because even in the historical situation, Jesus is waiting to reveal this. Yeah. At the end of Mark, in Mark chapter 14, at the end of 14. This is the best one. So we're, we're getting to the very end. Kevin, you might be able to copy and paste this. Oh, look, he already did. He's on top of it, man. This is the best one. This is the best one. This is Mark 14, 61 through 64. The context here is that Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. It's an illegal nighttime trial happening at the high priest's house. He's about to get condemned to death. And he's, if we're, we're entering the end of the story, you should get the best one right now. Yes. That's how is, it should work. He's about to go and die on the cross in the next chapter. So you, this is the moment where, this is it. where it all comes together. And it says this, but he, meaning Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said... I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And, and again, pay attention to the response that he gets from this because there's no misunderstanding. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deser deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his and goes on. Now, this is Jesus at this point is condemned to death. He's tortured and killed. But again, nobody gets condemned to death for saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. Or a prophet. Or a prophet. Or a wise teacher. People have done this time and time again in history. This is in the fact, moment. In fact, it's near impossible to get a capital punishment take place in Jerusalem at this time. Yeah, they go very, very far out it's, of their way to secure that. Basically, it's, on, it's pretty much near outlawed for them to do it independently. So they have to like go up to Pilate and hence this story. So it's, it's not an easy thing for someone yeah. to get executed over blasphemy in first century Israel. And so for the high priest to tear his robes and say, blasphemy, mm -hmm. it's because Jesus is claiming to be God. And uh, and again, this is where the historical Jesus, as Bart Ehrman's talking about, if Jesus doesn't think he's God, this is Jesus's chance to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm. No, I mean, I'm the Messiah. I mean, I'm a good teacher. I mean, I've come to bring Israel to victory. I, whatever other thing it would be, mm. This is his chance to say, oh, no, sorry. And on top of that, you're going to have like three minutes to do something very complicated here. But what? Yeah, I can do it. I'll do it in three minutes. The image he evokes is he says, you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds. What's he mean? And most, okay, so again, if you don't know the Old Testament, you're not seeing this through Jewish eyes. You just go, that's weird. What a weird response. You're on trial and you go, I'm going to show up with some clouds, man. And you're going to see become in these clouds and, and bring the judgment type of thing. So what is he pulling upon right here? Okay. In Daniel chapter seven, and I, we're going to do this fast, but essentially there's a vision given and it describes the throne room of God. And he, the ancient of days shows up and he's there to judge and to rule. And it talks about how all the people are gathered around him to serve him. So 
surrounding the throne room of God, there's all these people to serve the God of Israel. Then right after this, you get the Im- this image, and it says that there's one like the Son of Man. There's a human one, one like a Son of Man, the Son of Man, and he's coming in the clouds. Secondary note, or there's, there's two notes with that. Clouds and smoke in the Bible are the presence of God. They yeah, represent and the, the vehicle of God. of God. He rides them. He rides the clouds. Yahweh rides the clouds. By the way, on top of that, that's the other note, is that's sort of like a polemic against Baal worship, um, because Baal in the old in Old Testament times is the writer of the clouds. So there's a false god named Baal or Baal, however you want to pronounce it, who's the writer in the clouds. And the God of Israel is like, no, you're not the writer of the clouds, man. I'm the one who rides in the clouds. So smoke, clouds, those types of things often represent the presence of God. But then you have one who is human, son of man, and he's coming in the clouds. He is the new rider of the clouds. He's the cloud rider. And then he goes up and he's given this everlasting kingdom. And it says, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation now serve him. And so it's this, this super powerful image of a human one who is now being served by all the nations with this everlasting kingdom. And he's there in the throne room of God. And so Jesus went on trial when he can get himself out of it by just saying, I'm a prophet. I'm, I'm no, nah, don't worry about it. I'm just a Messiah. Even. He makes a direct claim to be the one who will be given every kingdom. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will serve him. He's the one in the throne room of God. He is the one who is given the everlasting kingdom. And the high priest who knows the Old Testament knows exactly what Jesus is claiming because his first response is to tear his robes. This is blasphemy. What more do we need? Time and it's, it's this super powerful thing too because it's like, not only is it revealing G- who Jesus is, but it's like this, it's the hero of all heroes. Yeah. It's when on trial, do you lie to get yourself out of trouble? Do you say what's not true? Do you not deny yourself, deny what is true to get out of a horrific death? But he looks in the high priest's eye, the high priest. The highest authority in his world. And says, not so. Like, and there's a claim of his authority in that. Yeah. You are not the highest authority. And you see this replicated with his, um, in his conversation with Pilate. It's yeah. different than the, the Roman high authority. Priest, the highest Roman authority is like, you don't have any authority unless my father in heaven yeah, gave it to you. The only authority you have is because God gave it to you. Oh, and by the way, I could call down angels right now. Yeah. Um, and so the, the the climactic image before the crucifixion is Jesus' claim to be the cloud rider, the one who shows up in the throne room and has all the nations serve him and is given the everlasting throne room. So he's calling upon this image of the Son of Man and at the same time expanding and clarifying what it means. Yeah. And what it means is what the whole book to this point has been pointing to, which is Jesus is God. Yeah, and the, the, the accusation would be, well, Jesus doesn't claim to be God. Well, what do you want me to do? You say, I am God, the second person of the Trinity. Right. He's not going to use the theological language that faithful Christians use to try and articulate deep, robust theolo- theological doctrine. He used the categories that were available to him at the day, and not only available, but the preferred way of right. communicating these truths. I'm it, man. And when he does that, case closed. What more do we need to hear? Tear the robe, crucify. Kill this guy. So, truly... Case closed. You want to know if Jesus in the Gospels believed he was God. There's a whole separate set of arguments about the Gospel authors, etc. We'll address some of that in later episodes. But the earliest Gospel makes it crystal clear this guy is God. 
in all the available categories of the time and of those people. So um, if you got more examples from the Gospels or from Mark in particular that you'd like to share, throw them in the comments, and we will be back next week to finish this topic. Yeah, and if you didn't hit the like button, there was a secret 20 likes or Kevin's fired. That's true, what, yet again. Um, so it's only 10. You got like 30 seconds to hit the like button, man. Hey, find us on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and uh, subscribe to our podcast. See you guys later. Pete, my rap album, it comes out next week. It drops next week. Yeah. <laughs>